Psalm 107, starting at verse 1, I'm just going to read three verses. We're going to look at thanksgivings upon special occasions today, and we're going to learn all about the Feast of Purim, and a uh, very interesting topic. Uh, I have a lot to say. Let me read the first three verses of 107. Okay, thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Then it goes on in Thanksgiving after Thanksgiving. Another occasional element of worship is Thanksgivings upon special occasions, and that's Westminster Confession of Faith 21.5, which is Westminster Directory for Public Worship of God identifies as Days of Public Thanksgiving. Unlike oaths or vows, which by their very nature are occasional, public expressions of thanks to God are a crucial aspect of all biblical worship. Public expressions of thanks are an aspect of all biblical worship and are commanded by God to be done every Lord's Day or Christian Sabbath. <coughs> now we're going to talk about occasional days, but let's get, let's get this straight about Thanksgiving, and we're going to look at Thanksgiving. It's crucial to worship. Private and family thanksgivings to God is something Christians ought to be doing every single day. Thanksgiving upon special occasions refers to a special day of thanksgiving set aside by a Christian civil magistrate or ecclesiastical council or, uh, or assembly for the purpose of giving God thanks for some particular, unique, or special day or time of deliverance from God. And we're going to go into detail about that. This could be the result of winning a special, a crucial battle. If we were a Christian nation, perhaps the Battle of Midway would have been a day set aside for Thanksgiving. Some great and mighty battle. <clears throat> or the end of a terrible disease or plague. <clears throat> or a much needed uh, rain in a, in a severe drought. The word occasional refers to the fact that these special days of Thanksgiving are done in response to a a particular <clears throat> important event and are not important national deliverances and are not to become annual national holidays such as Thanksgiving or Christmas and we'll, under, we'll explain that in a moment. Only God has the authority to set up an annual religious perpetual feast day where public worship for thanksgiving is required. And, of course, the Old Testament, Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, Exodus 12, 14, 23, 14, Leviticus 23, 4 to 44, etc. The annual feasts, <coughs> together with other special yearly days, the blowing of the trumpets on the first day of the seventh month, Numbers 29, 1 to 6, the Day of Atonement, Numbers 7 to 11, six months after Passover, were a part of the Old Testament ceremonial order that ceased with the death and resurrection of Christ. We don't celebrate the Jewish feast. Now, I know there are what are called um, Messianic Jews, and one of their gimmicks is they want to retain the Old Testament feasts. Totally unscriptural. Paul calls them shadows in the book of Galatians. They've been set aside. They're no longer... Uh, they pointed to Christ. They were, 
typical, they were shadows, and the book, book of Hebrews makes that clear as well. In order to properly understand the meaning and reasoning behind Days of Thanksgiving, we should first define what biblical thanksgiving toward God is. Okay, what is biblical thanksgiving to God? And then we'll examine the chief pretext for Days of Thanksgiving from Esther chapter 9. So those are the two things we're going to do today. Very simple, um, and I think very illuminating. <clears throat> the primary Hebrew word for Thanksgiving, or thanks, is Yada, which means to give thanks, to laud, or to praise. It is found 114 times in the Old Testament, with 70 instances in the book of Psalms. It comes from the primary word Yad, which refers to an open hand. And the Jewish posture for prayer that we see in the Old Testament is they would stand and they would extend their arms out and hold their hands up to God. So you see the relationship between the original word to the to the uh, to praise. <clears throat> now the first use of this word is found in regard to Leah's birth of Judah, Genesis twenty nine thirty five. This is the first example of the word in the Old Testament. <clears throat> and she conceived and bore a son and said, "Now I will praise." Worth you can translate it thank. It's the word for thanks giving, the Lord. Sometimes it's translated praise, sometimes it's translated thanks. Yada is a word with overlapping meanings that combines praise, thanksgiving, and even confession. You could have a confession of thanksgiving to God. And of course, we do that in our prayers all the time. As thanks and our praise to Yahweh, it is a natural, naturally a crucial aspect of public and private worship. First thing you ought to do when you roll out of bed in the morning is thank God through Christ. The last thing you ought to do before you go to bed is thank God through Christ. And of course, it, you read in the book of Acts in various parts of the Bible, they thanked God before every meal. In prayer and with the singing of songs, we confess thanksgiving to God by noting Yahweh's character, which merits appreciation, gratitude, and obeisance. <clears throat> Thus our thanks is directed to God's name, Psalm 105, 1, 106, 47, 122, 4, Isaiah 14, 12, 4, and 1 Chronicles 16, 8. That is, we praise and we thank God himself, his very being. He is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, all-powerful, holy, righteous, good, merciful, etc. Through Jesus Christ, the vicarious sacrifice, the only way to God. Genesis 4, 4, John 14, 6, and Acts 4, 12. And we thank and praise God for his mighty acts of salvation. <clears throat> and just read the book of Psalms, which is God's hymnal for the church, the inspired hymnal for the church. And it's thanking God's character, who God is, and thanking God for his mighty redemptive acts in history, especially, of course, Christ. <clears throat> God is even to be praised for his chastisement of his saints that results in correction and repentance. For example, Psalm 51.4. <clears throat> as well as the pouring out of his wrath on the wicked. Psalm 7.11-17, Psalm 9, 
15 to 17, Revelation 11, 17 to 18, 15, 3 to 4, and 16, 5 to 6, etc. I just looked up some quickly. God is praised when he pours out his wrath and indignation on people who deserve it. His justice is praised. He's being just. He's being holy. Yahweh's acts of judgment demonstrate his holiness, righteousness, and justice. Praise and thanksgiving is connected to confession of sins because God's forgiveness is due solely to our Lord's expiatory death on the cross, which enables God to be fully just while justifying sinners. For our sins have been paid for in full. Romans 1, 17 to 18, Romans 3, 24 to 26, and Galatians 3, 13, etc., etc. We should thank and praise God for all the blessings of our life, for everything we received is undeserved and therefore is a gift of God. The air we breathe, the food we have, the nation we live in, our houses, everything we have is a gift. Everything, we, do not des we don't deserve any of it. The most common form of peace offering in the law was the thank offering. Leviticus 7, 12, 13, 15, and 22, 29. It is presented in, symbol it presented in symbolic form an act of thanksgiving for blessings received from God. And see, for example, Psalm 56, 12 to 13, Psalm 107, 22, 116, 17, Jeremiah 33, 11. So thankfulness toward God should completely permeate a Christian's life. And you can see the intimate relationship between thanksgiving and praise. They go together. They should always be together. And the Psalms are just permeated with thanks. Thanks, thanks, thanks over and over. We thank God and we praise God. Now the New Testament word for thanks or thankfulness is <coughs> Eucharistia, where we derive the word Eucharist. That's what the Roman Catholics call the host, and High Church Episcopalians and so forth, they call it the Eucharist. It refers to the giving of thanks to God in worship. It especially expresses our gratitude for our salvation in Christ. The verb form, Eucharisteo, to give thanks is used at the beginning of all of Paul's epistles except 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 and 2 Timothy, and Titus. <coughs> Galatians is a uh, very strong, the first chapter is a very strong rebuke. And so he's, he doesn't thank God. In all the epistles, he thanks God for the, for the church and what they're doing and so forth, but not, not in Galatians. I thank my God through Jesus Christ, Romans 1.8. I thank my God always, 1 Corinthians 1.4. I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, Ephesians 1.15. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Philippians 1, 3-4. We give thanks to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. And that's Colossians 1, 3, but it's almost identical to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, 2 Thessalonians 1, 3, and Philemon 4. Paul's thankfulness to God permeated his prayers. It permeated his prayers. It ought to permeate our attitude. We should be thankful for everything we have. <clears throat> his giving of thanks is coupled with a notation of his intimate personal relationship with God and the mediation of Christ by whom alone our prayers and praises are received and accepted. 
The apostle on almost every epistle expresses thanksgiving for the extension of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is now known and worshipped among the Gentiles. His thankfulness is based in part uh, on God's sovereign grace, 1 Corinthians 4b, for the grace, the unmerited favor, which was given you by Christ Jesus. So thankfulness is crucial in both Old and New Testaments. It's a crucial aspect of our prayers. It's a crucial aspect of our praise. And if you read, like I said, there's over 70 occurrences just in the book of Psalms alone. Most of them in the Old Testament are in the book of Psalms. Now, thanksgiving is a crucial aspect of the Lord's Supper. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, 1 Corinthians 11.24, Mark 14.23, Luke 22.17. Not simply as thankfulness for the provision of food and drink, but for the precious blood and broken body of Christ. So, we thank God for his nature and character. We have a God who's worthy of all praise, honor, and worship. And we thank God, especially for the salvation of Christ. It is a grateful acknowledgement of God's mercy through Jesus. Our Lord's expiatory sacrifice is the foundation of all the blessings we receive as Christians and as God's creatures. <clears throat> Why does God tolerate the wicked so long? Through history. Well, he does so because Christ has, had to come and Christ had to die on the cross and now God's gathering his elect. If you take Christ out of the picture, uh, there wouldn't have been a family saved in the ark. No one in the eight souls would not have been saved. God would have just killed everybody and he could have started over. But he had mercy through Christ. We are thankful for the salvation celebrated at the Holy Supper comes at the price of our Lord's blood. The new covenant is superior to the old and that Jesus' sacrifice is perfect, sufficient, once and for all, and replace the ineffective blood of bulls and goats. Hebrews 9, 20 and 11, excuse me, 10, 16 to 18. All the Old Testament sacrifices and feasts have been fulfilled by Christ. <clears throat> the ritual remembrance and special Christian fellowship of the Holy Supper is the supreme capstone and climax of all the Jewish inspired remembrances of the mighty saving acts of God noted in the Pentateuch, for example, Exodus 12.35 in the book of Psalms. For example, 77.11-12, etc. Therefore, Jesus is the center or axis of our thanksgiving to God and our special days of thanksgiving. Okay, if God has mercy, it's because of Christ. If he has mercy on his people, it's because of Christ. He is our Passover lamb, 1 Corinthians 5.7, an expiatory sacrifice, Romans 3.25 and 5.9, 1 Corinthians 10.16, Ephesians 1.7, and 2.13, Colossians 1.20, the true and perfect sin offering, Romans 8.3, 2 Corinthians 5.21. All historical deliverances of God's people in history are rooted directly in the once and for all sacrificial deliverance in Christ. Now, our thanksgiving slash praise is an expression of our joy. James 5.13, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. We should not get drunk to feel joyful, Paul tells us, but rather should be, this is Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, but should be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, seeking and making singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks 
for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise, thanks. Thanks, praise. They go together. Days of celebration and feasting among unbelievers are largely based on hedonism, gluttony, drunkenness, and dissipation. While the good food and excellent beverages in moderation is lawful, the focus of our praise and thanks, even our particular occasional deliverances, is always on God through Christ. It's always through Christ. He has saved us and not we ourselves. The great wickedness of the heathen is found in the fact that although God has clearly revealed himself in creation, which theologians refer to as natural revelation, as why well, I'm not impressed by these knuckleheads, these atheists on YouTube. I know they're very intellectual and they're very arrogant and they sound, they, they sound all intellectual. They're idiots. They're fools. Paul says, Romans 1.21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful. So what is natural revelation teach all humanity even apart from special revelation which really teaches it with capital letters clearly we ought to be glorifying God and we ought to be thankful if one reverences and worships Yahweh as his God through Christ then he will continually thank him for all the blessings he receives daily from his hands A brief consideration of the meaning of thanksgiving in relation to the worship of God has revealed to us that thanksgiving toward Yahweh and Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is interwoven and integral to prayer, praise, and public confession. Christ has taken us for being naked beggars in the dust, guilty, who are enslaved to Satan and our sinful lusts, spiritually dead, helpless, and under the wrath of a holy God, and has redeemed us and made us kings and priests. And if you're not thankful for that, you're definitely not a Christian. The Old Testament, three major annual feasts, made Thanksgiving an integral aspect of commemoration and celebration. The celebration of Thanksgiving continues in the New Covenant era in the weekly moral Sabbath, the Lord's Day. Okay, we have the Lord's Day every week. That should be our day of celebration, our day of commemoration. We don't need to add man-made holy days the first day of the week, and is a crucial aspect of the Lord's Supper. Thanksgivings for national deliverances are the logical extension of the Christian world and life view. They also presuppose a Christian commonwealth with solid Bible-believing churches. Okay, if Joe Biden proclaimed a day of Thanksgiving, what would it be for, and who would it be to whom? It would be to the, Christ it would be to the secular pagan state, and it would be for things like murdering babies or uh, people stealing on stealing from the rich and giving to criminals. You've got to have a biblical world in life view to have biblical days of thanksgiving. <clears throat> Today our nation's annual day of thanksgiving <coughs> is more a celebration of Indians and humanity than a praise of the true God who created turkeys, corn, potatoes, cranberries, etc., Because of our nation founding itself upon a secular creed, secular humanism, we can't. What is a Thanksgiving for? The public schools can't teach us to 
Yahweh, the true God, through Jesus Christ, so it becomes a meaningless day of thanking Indians. Supposedly the Indians helps people out, and we should thank the Indians. Without faith in Jesus Christ and the triune God, infinite personal God who exists, Thanksgiving becomes another secular humanistic day of self-love, self-exaltation, and status propaganda. Romans one twenty one. They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. <clears throat> you say, well, how in the world these cities run by Democrats where crime is rampant, and people are defecating on the street and shooting up heroin and dying on the streets and robbing people and in New York. People are crazy. People are pushing people in front of subways. Why do they tolerate that? Because they're spiritually blind. It's part of their religion. They're dedicated to Satan. The original pilgrims and Puritans of New England would be hated and despised by the vast majority of our current political, political leaders. Because the original Christians in our country loved Christ and they loved God. Most current political leaders love self, power, and humanistic lies. It's all propaganda. It's all lies. A thanksgiving that does not exalt, glorify, focus upon, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ is nothing but a form of idolatry. They shouldn't even call it thanksgiving. They don't even, they don't even believe in God. Why do they call it thanksgiving? They should call it National Football Day or something. Now we turn our attention to the second half of our discussion, which is the biblical warrant for National Days of Thanksgiving. <clears throat> now the proof texts which were added to the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith and Shorter and Larger Catechisms uh, were added after everything was written. Somebody suggested that they should have uh, proof texts, which is a great idea, and then it was added later. <clears throat> uh, and that what is given for occasional days of thanksgiving are more inferential than direct, and we'll, we'll see why. There's Psalm 107, which for some reason is in brackets, perhaps because it serves as a general command to thank Yahweh for his deliverances from enemies and various troubles in history. And I like what Spurgeon says here on this verse here, <clears throat> on the beginning of uh, 107. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good. It is all we can give him, and the least we can give him. Therefore, let us diligently render to him our thanksgiving. The psalmist is in earnest in the exhortation, hence the use of the interjection, oh, to intensify his words. Let us be at all times thoroughly fervent in the praises of the Lord, both with our lips and with our lives, <clears throat> by thanksgiving and thanksliving. Jehovah for that is the name here used, is not to be worshipped with groans and cries, but with thanks, for he is good. And these thanks should be heartily rendered, for his is no common goodness. He is good by nature and essence and proven to be good in all the acts of his eternity. Compared with him, there is none good, no, not one. But he is essentially, perpetually, and superlatively infinitely good. We are the perpetual partakers of his goodness, and therefore ought above all his creatures to magnify his name. Our praise should be increased by the fact that the divine goodness is not a transient thing, but uh, in the attribute of his mercy abides forever the same, for his mercy endureth forever. And if you read that 
psalm. That, that is the, the refrain that keeps coming back. For his mercy endures forever. The word endureth has been properly supplied by the translators, and yet it somewhat restricts the sense, which will better be seen if we read it, for his mercy forever. That mercy has no beginning, and shall never know an end. Our sin requires that goodness should display itself to us in the form of mercy, and it has done so, and will do so evermore. Let us not be slack in praising the goodness which thus adapts itself to our fallen nature. End of quote. I just love that quote. That's one of Spurgeon's best quotes. That's from his uh, commentary on the Psalms. So it's a duty for individuals, churches, and whole nations to bow the knee to Christ, offer praise to God, and thanksgiving unto Him. Okay, thanks. Uh, the whole West was in severe drought. The three prior years were the three worst years of drought they claim in a thousand years. And they had record rains. Record rains. All the reservoirs in California are full except for Trinity, which is uh, has a much smaller basin around it for water. Only Trinity needs more water. They're all full. Shasta, Waterville. Do we see any Thanksgiving out of the politicians or people for that? Great blessing. First God who sends the rain. No, nothing. Now, the chief proof text for thanksgivings upon special occasions is found in Esther chapter 9. So we're going to look at this and analyze it and avoid errors connected to it and see why they chose this. I'll begin at verse 15. <clears throat> and the Jews who were in Shushan, that's the capital of Persia, gathered together <clears throat> again on the 14th day of the month Adar, that's February, and killed 300 men at Shushan, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This is after uh, Haman's plot has been defeated and Haman is executed. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives and the rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was the 13th day of the month of Adar. Well, they, why didn't they touch the plunder? Well, they, the, God placed those people under the ban. This is a special judgment of God. And what they did was authorized by, this, by Mordecai, the prime minister, and of course, Queen Esther. And on the 14th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were at Shushan assembled together on the 13th day, as well as on the 14th, and on the 15th day of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who dwelt in the unwalled town celebrated the 14th day of the month of Adar with gladness and feasting as a holiday, it's a bad translation. It should say, as a good day, the old King James. That's the new King James. As a good day, and for sending presents to one another. And Mordecai wrote these things and sent letters to all the Jews, near and far, who were in the provinces of King Ashuerus, to establish among them that they should celebrate yearly the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar, as in the days in which the Jews had rested from their enemies on the month which was turned from sorrow to joy for them, and from morning to a good day not a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and joy of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted the custom which they had begun. Uh, the word custom is not there. That's a bad translation. They accepted the... Uh, it, it simply means that they adopted what Mordecai had suggested, as Mordecai had written to them. So they called these days Purim, 
after the name Pur. It's a Persian word, which means lots. Therefore, because of all the words of this letter, which they had seen concerning this matter and what had happened to them, the Jews established and imposed upon themselves and their descendants and all who had joined them, that is, proselytes, that without fail they should celebrate these two days every year according to the written instructions and according to the prescribed time. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation, every family, every province, and every city. That these days of Purim should not fail to be observed among the Jews and that the memory of them should not perish among their descendants. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Ab Abihel, with Mordecai the Jew, and she's related to Mordecai, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter about Purim. And we'll go into detail about all this in a minute. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus uh, with words of peace and truth to confirm these days of Purim at the appointed time as Mordecai the queen do, the Jew and Queen Esther had prescribed for them. And as they had decreed for themselves and their descendants concerning matters of their fasting and lamentation, so the decree of Esther confirmed these matters of Purim and it was written in the book. Okay, it's part of scripture. Now let's analyze this a little bit. Purim is unique in that Mordecai, he's a religious leader of the Jews, very likely a prophet. I regard him, and a lot of scholars regard him as the author of the book of Esther. Some think it was Nehemiah, but it's very likely at least a good portion of the book was written by Mordecai. <clears throat> so uh, Mordecai, in conjunction with Esther, to the civil authority, instituted a recurring day of gladness and feasting for all the Jewish people that was not prescribed in the law of Moses. And this is the first time we see this happening in the whole Old Testament. <coughs> this example has led a number of churchmen who claim to be reformed to abandon the regular principle, which says that no one, either civil magistrates or ecclesiastical uh, governors, has the authority to add a holy day to what God has commanded in his word. And when you get a chance, read Deuteronomy 4, 2, 12, 32, Proverbs 35 to 6, Leviticus 10, 1 and 2, 1 Chronicles 15, 13 to, 11, uh, 13 to 15, Jeremiah 7, 31, 19, 5, 2 Chronicles 11, 14 to 15, etc. Moreover, both Jesus Christ, Matthew 15, 1 to 9, and Paul, Colossians 2, 8 and 20 to 23, condemned man-made traditions and supported sola scriptura. In other words, it's not simply an Old Testament law that you can't add to what God has prescribed and simply obey what the Bible teaches. It's taught in the New Testament by Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul as well. Therefore, one cannot interpret Purim as a mere human tradition or as a man-made addition to what God requires without violating the analogy of Scripture. And we will examine this question after we note the details surrounding the special day. Well, there are a number of things about how this day came about and its significance. And pay close attention, because this is very interesting. First, the occasion of the Day of Gladness. <clears throat> is God's special deliverance of the Jews from the plans of Haman, the chief enemy of the Jews? He's like the head of the Gestapo. He's like Heinrich Himmler. Now the word for gladness here, Simcha, Esther 8.16 and 9.17 and 18 and 19, refers to joy, expressions of joy or rejoicing, 
and we are to serve the Lord with our God with joy and gladness for the abundance of everything, Deuteronomy 28.47. Worship and feast days are to be occasions of great joy directed to God. And joy can be expressed by the singing and clapping of hands, Isaiah 55.12. Now in Esther 8.17, the Hebrew word, sason, is also used for joy or gladness, and it essentially has the same meaning as simcha, except perhaps with more of an emphasis on cheerfulness. God's great deliverances should make us cheerful and joyful, and these appropriate biblical emotions should cause us to rejoice in our covenant God with confessions of his perfections and great acts of salvation coupled with songs of praise. Not booze it up and get drunk, which is how Purim developed among the Jews. It was a great day of drunkenness when they became corrupt. <clears throat> Haman the prince, the prime minister of Persia, had a seething hatred of the Jews, and he especially hated Mordecai. And he devised a clever plan for the complete annihilation. We're talking about he wanted to kill every single Jew in the whole empire. Now, if he had done that, there would have been no Christ, because Christ had to descend from David. Now, being superstitious, he cast lots to determine the best day to carry out his plan. 3-7. Esther 3-7. Now, the Hebrew word meaning lots is Purim. Therefore, one can conclude that the name given to this day of rejoicing is designed both to mock Yahweh's enemies and shows that God has absolute control of history. I mean, it's an ironical name. <laughs> they take what Haman did and God turned it around. God turned it around and saved the Jews. It's all of God. <clears throat> Now, during the period of the Maccabees, uh, which is an intertestinal period, the Maccabees were the ones who defeated the Greeks, the time of Thanksgiving was called Mordecai's Day, 2 Maccabees 15.36. According to Josephus, the Jews throughout the whole world celebrated this day, Joseph Antiquities 11.6.13. And he notes that the feast became a time of feasting and drunkenness, unfortunately. Uh, this time of celebration is not mentioned or alluded to in the New Testament at all. Regarding the Jewish celebration of Purim, uh, C.L. Feinberg writes this. He's an Old Testament scholar. Purim always has been popular among the Jews. On the 13th month of Adar, a fast is observed called the Fast of Esther. That evening, the synagogue is frequented where there, after the evening service, the book of Esther is read. When the name of Haman is read, the congregation says in unison, Let his name be blotted out! And the young add their part with noisemakers and Purim rattle, rattles. The public reader recites the names of Haman's sons in one breath to convey the idea that they were hanged together. The next morning, the 14th day of Adar, the congregation assembles again in the synagogue to conclude the formal religious exercises. The rest of the day is devoted to mirth and rejoicing. Large numbers of hymns have been composed for public service. Uh, this would be after 1850. Uh, before 1850, the Jews only sang psalms. Also plays, dramas, and recitations. The theme of the festival has been rehearsed many times in the centuries of persecution in ancient and modern times. A prominent feature of the feast is sending food and gifts to the poor. Esther 9.19 Thus the observant of Purim throughout the centuries argues strongly for the heuristicity of the events recorded in the book of Esther. And it's still celebrated to this very day, uh, like we just read. <clears throat> uh, as Christians, we're not obligated. It's an Old Testament feast, so we're not obligated to celebrate it. 
the lot fell on the 13th of Adar. This is the lot that Haman threw, uh, Esther uh, 3.12 and following. Adar is the final month of the Jewish calendar, which corresponds to our February or March. The Jews discovered this threat and through Mordecai and Esther's leadership proclaimed a fast in order to appeal to God for deliverance. So they find out the plan. We're talking about annihilation. Same thing Hitler wanted to do. Same thing the Nazis wanted to do. Exactly the same. But what did they do? They fasted and they appealed to God and God answered their prayers. The ground of the day is Yahweh's amazing salvation, saving intervention on behalf of his people. In God's providence, the king of Persia would not, could not sleep. This is what's amazing. You read, you read the book of Esther, and it's one amazing providential intervention on behalf of God after another. The king couldn't sleep, so what did he do? He got a servant and had him read the records of read the, the records of the Persians to him to make him sleepy so he could fall asleep. <clears throat> so as the servant reads the re records to him, he learns that Mordecai had saved his life but had never been rewarded. Esther 6, 1 and following. And this occurred right before Hamar came in to su suggest that the king hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him, that is, Haman had prepared, Esther 6, 4. Then, only a few days later, at the banquet of wine, Esther made her brave appeal to King Asuerus to spare the Jews from Haman and all those who were seeking to murder them. It's Esther 7, 1 to 6. And we know uh, it's not just one guy and his sons. It was a widespread conspiracy to murder the Jews involving many thousands of people. So, you know, you think Hitler and you think him, uh, Heinrich Himmler and you think of all the Nazis. You know, I'm, I'm talking dedicated Nazis who wanted to kill the Jews. Well, the same thing's happening here, basically. <clears throat> Then to make matters even worse, another providential thing for Haman, the king walks in as Haman is pleading for his life on the couch with Esther. And he interprets it as a hostile act of assault. Esther 7-8. So things are not going good for Haman. And this is all of God. It's all of God. When the king learned that Haman sought to kill Mordecai, the Jews, and even his beloved wife Esther, the tables were turned. Haman and all those who sought to murder the Jews were themselves killed, and we read that. Over 75,000 people were killed, Esther 7, 9, 8, 11 to 14. And uh, liberal commentators just had the field day with that. How dare the Jews? Well, it just mars the whole book. They're taking revenge. Oh, how terrible. No, it was a judicial act of judgment on the behalf of God where they were authorized. They were placed under the ban of God. The Cherim principle. They were placed under God's ban and, and were devoted to death, and that's why they couldn't take the, the booty. They didn't take the booty. They were commanded by God to kill these people. It would be equivalent to if God delivered the Jews in Nazi Germany in 1940 and the Jews were allowed to go through the land and kill all the dedicated Nazis. Would that be a bad thing if God did that? And the answer is absolutely not. The Nazis deserved to die. They were, they were murdering and persecuting innocent people. The Jews had done nothing wrong. All the, all the lies about the Jews, they're all lies. It's all Nazi propaganda. <clears throat> In addition, Mordecai replaced Haman as the prime minister. And Esther was given the sta estate of Haman. And Haman, of course, being the prime minister, was an exceptionally wealthy man. That's Esther 8, 2, and 7, and 8. As prime minister, or prince... The great, the, the chief prince, 
Mordecai wrote a letter that gave the Jews throughout the whole Persian Empire, from India to Ethiopia. That's one heck of a big empire. 120 provinces. 127 provinces in all. Complete protection from persecution with severe penal sanctions upon anyone who sought to assault them. Esther 8, 8-14. So they now have full, solid legal recognition by the state. It's not a Christian state, but Mordecai's been placed there by God. And anyone who seeks to kill or harm the Jews will be put to death. The covenant people were saved by God's special providential intervention, and the line of the Messiah to come was preserved. And that's the chief thing. Christ's line had to be preserved. Second, there was an authoritative decision to commemorate and celebrate this amazing deliverance. How this became an annual two-day celebration is noteworthy. Number one, this process begins with a letter written by Mordecai the prince, the prime minister, and religious leader of the Jews. <clears throat> the letter indicated the history of the covenant people's special deliverance by God and said that they needed to establish a yearly celebration in remembrance on the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar, Esther 9.21. This letter was sent to the Jews in every province of Persia, Esther 9.20. The days are specified as due to the Jews, and this is right out of scriptures, 9.22, rest from their enemies. It's not simply a, deli a one-time deliverance here. They had rest from their enemies. And then we know the history that eventually they'll be sent back. Persia was very friendly to the Jews and sends them back and establishes them back in their kingdom, the remnant. They are not to be days of sadness, but a good day, King James Version, a better translation. Days of feasting and joy, of sending gifts to one another and gifts to the poor, Esther 9.22c. Number two. The covenant people throughout the empire hardly agreed with Mordecai's letter. The New King James translation, so the Jews accepted the custom in verse 23, is unfortunate, for the Hebrew cabal simply means they undertook or chose to obey Mordecai's instructions. Okay, the, the word custom, we, we tend to assign that to things that are just simply made up by people. It sounds as if Mordecai made it up arbitrarily, and that's not the case at all. <clears throat> the dedication of the Jews in Persia to this time of rejoicing is indicated in verse 27 where it says, here's what it says, they established and imposed it upon themselves and their descendants and all who would join them, that is, proselytes or converts to the true religion. In other words, they made an agreement. They made a covenant and made it binding on posterity. They made a covenant and they made it binding on their children and grandchildren, etc., now, one cannot, and this is important, one cannot impose anything in the religious sphere on, on oneself or one's posterity that is not first either commanded or authorized or prescribed by God in sacred scripture. Or before the close of the canon by special revelation. You have things in Scripture that we find the Jews doing that we don't have a record of a command. And then, by logic, by, by inference, we call that a proved historical example. For example, there's Cain and Abel. One offers a blood sacrifice of a clean animal. The other offers the fruit of the ground, expecting God to accept that as human merit. 
and God accepts the blood offering of a clean animal. There's no commands prior to that about a blood offering. Well, we know that God had to command that, but it's just not recorded. That's called a proved historical example, and we learn that from the book of Hebrews, that he had an act, it was an act of faith on the part of Abel. Well, what does faith assume? Faith, faith is in God's word. Faith is not simply in a human tradition. Faith in human tradition does nothing. It has to be faith in God's word. For this reason, excellent scholars such as Thomas McCree, he's a free Presbyterian, uh, 19th century, believe that Mordecai was a prophet or was directed by a prophet or both. The fact that nothing is mentioned about a special revelation is not a problem once we understand the biblical concept of a approved historical example and the incorporation of these events and commands in the sacred scriptures. Okay, they're told to put it in a book. It becomes part of the book of Esther. Something inscripturated and approved by the Holy Spirit meets all the requirements of the regular principle. And here's McCree's analysis, which makes perfect sense. This is from his uh, lectures on Esther. Did Mordecai, in proposing it, act from the private action of his own mind? The private notion of his own mind? And in confirming it, did he proceed entirely upon the consent of the people? Or was he guided in or was he guided both by divine and extraordinary counsel imparted to him immediately or by some prophetic person living at that time? <clears throat> that the vision and the prophecy were still enjoyed by the Jews dwell dwelling in Persia cannot be denied by those who believe in the canonical authority of this book and what is contained in that of Ezra. We have already seen reasons for thinking Mordecai acted under the influence of the faith of Moses' parents from the time that he proposed his cousin Esther as a candidate to succeed Vashti the queen. There can be no doubt that he was raised up as, in an extraordinary manner as a savior to Israel. And in the course of this lecture, we have seen grounds for believing that. In addition to his other honors, he was employed as the penman of this portion of inspired scripture. From all these considerations, it is reasonable to conclude that the Feast of Purim was not instituted without divine counsel and approbation. Add to this that the decree of Esther confirming it, it is expressly said in the close of this chapter to have been engrossed in this book by whomever it was written. End of quote. That's, like, that's from 1838, that, when it was first published. And keep in mind our confession of faith. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any representation or any way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. That's 21.1. Now the alternative to this interpretation, which we have from Thomas McCree, and it's my interpretation in the Westminster Divines, is to ignore the analogy of Scripture and thus assert that men can simply make up their own holy days or annual religious feast days whenever they desire. And remember, this is the first time this has happened since the five books of Moses. There's no additional days added until now. Now, such a view, which is common today, even among Reformed churchmen, would place a blatant contradiction within Scripture. Note, for example, the words of scholar and PCA pastor uh, R.C. Sproul, who died a, few, a year or two ago. And I've seen him at least three times, and I've had lunch with him once. 
Um, I agree with him on virtually everything except worship. He's terrible on worship. Here's what he says. Quote, there may be a feast, for example, at Thanksgiving or at Christmas or special holy days during the week prior to Easter as on Maudy Tuesday, Maudy Thursday, end of quote. Now, Sproul here, and this is really the, the modern uh, thinking of vast majority of Presbyterians, sounds like a good Episcopalian or Roman Catholic in his application regarding occasional days of Thanksgiving. <clears throat> Instead of a one-time occasional day of Thanksgiving regarding a recent providential, especially unique deliverance of God, churchmen have a supposed warrant to set up their own recurring holy days, not authorized by Scripture. Christmas, Easter, the church calendar, etc., etc. That Sproul's prelatical understanding was rejected by the original Presbyterians, as seen in the Westminster Assembly's directory for the public worship of God. Quote, festival days, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. End of quote. Most of those who are regarded as conservative Presbyterians in our day have in practice rejected the regular principle of worship in favor of a Lutheran or a Episcopal anti-reform concept of worship. That's the situation we're in today. And it's quite tragic and quite sad that it's hard to find a Presbyterian church uh, that has biblical worship. It's very hard today. Very, very few. Probably less than 1% of Presbyterian churches have biblical worship, and that's sad. It shouldn't be that way. It's covenant-breaking. Now, the alternative to this interpretation is to ignore the analogy of Scripture. The Bible not only teaches that we are not to add or detract to what God has taught or authorized in ethics or religious practices, for example, Deuteronomy 4.2, 12.32, Proverbs 35, Matthew 5.15, 1-9, Colossians 2.8, etc., but also explicitly condemned King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, for setting up a feast day, and this is uh, directly from 1 Kings 12.33, in the month which he devised in his own heart. So God was angry with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, because he made up his own priests, he made up his own holy day, he made up his own kind of worship from his own heart. He made it up. In other words, it's not based on something on revelation from God. And that is why he's the paradigm of unbiblical worship and syncretism and corruption throughout the Kings and uh, Chronicles in the Old Testament. There must be a difference between what Mordecai required and what King Jeroboam commanded. The difference is one was authorized by God and thus had, it, had his approbation while the other was not. And then number three. Queen Esther with Mordecai, the prime minister, <coughs> and he's called Mordecai the Jew there because the Jews were going to respect his leadership. He was their leader. Used their full authority to confirm and set down in an authoritative record prescribed day of Purim. They had used their civil authority to civilly authorize and support what God had revealed that he wanted his people to do. So it's not the civil authorities make something up and now you have to obey it. It's just the opposite. God says we should do this and then the civil authorities confirm what God has said and agree with it. That's the way government should work. It's not the government is God and determines law. God is God, and the civil magistrate is supposed to apply what God wants us to do. God had preserved them and their seed, and thus the line to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, was preserved. 
If one does not regard their actions as confirming God's will for the people, then one has embraced a radical form of statism, where civil authorities have an intrinsic power to decree rites, ceremonies, and holy days for the church. And that's King Henry's view. That's the Episcopal view, which is thoroughly corrupt. Episcopalianism stands between Protestantism and Romanism. Yes, they, ex they accepted justification by faith alone, at least the early ones did, but their worship was thoroughly corrupt. And such thinking, of course, is anathema to the teaching of God's word. Third, and this is interesting, the events of the day appear to be conducted privately among families and friends. There are no special worship services called, or ceremonies or Levitical priestly activities noted. Having a good day of joy and gladness with feasting for what God has done does not require a public worship service. Although public worship services can be conducted on such days, and the directory recommends them, they are extraordinary and after the close of the canon, voluntary. Okay. And this is the thing about them choosing Purim as their example. Purim is unique. The days of Thanksgiving today are an application of Purim, but they're not, they don't directly correspond because Purim was given by God. A day today would be simply a response of something special today, and it's a one-time thing. You know, like the, the Battle of Midway or something. If we are a Christian nation. Now that Westminster divides, they use the book of Esther as the basis for a special occasional days of Thanksgiving, but their concept of special days is an application of the teaching of the book without direct correspondence. The authors of the Westminster Standards were strongly opposed to extra-biblical recurring, recurring festival days because such thinking was the basis of the Roman Catholic and Episcopal church calendars. They considered these days additions to the Word of God, which they were, and being additions to the Word of God, they were forbidden and they were sinful. Christmas is wicked. Christmas is sinful. It's evil. And if your church has a Christmas service, you should not attend church on that day. Specific times for Thanksgiving, of Thanksgiving, are good and wise when a providential deliverance warrants it, and they are truly occasional. Truly occasional, not a re repeated thing like a church calendar. But once something becomes a fixed annual day imposed by a civil or ecclesiastical authority, one has added a human tradition in addition to the weekly Christian Sabbath. And that denigrates the Sabbath. And that is sinful. That is sinful. Once a church accepts the idea of non-inspired, ecclesiastically imposed, yearly religious festival days, one in principle has adopted the thinking of the anti-Christian, radically heretical Roman Catholic Church. You've given man an authority. And that's why uh, the RPCNA, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of North America, which is obviously way better than the PCA and the OPC, is thoroughly corrupt and cut their covenant breakers because 98% of them all celebrate Christmas, which is an explicit violation of the regular principle and an explicit violation of the covenants, which are still binding. The covenants made, uh, whether you think they're binding on America or not, doesn't matter. They're certainly binding on all Presbyterians perpetually because they're lawful and they're biblical. And that's being violated today. So I hope this will help you understand the, the, uh, the goodness of having an occasional festival day, but let's not turn it into a human tradition. Let's not turn it into something that has to be done every year. It's voluntary. It's occasional. It has to be done after the act. It's a one-time thing, not to be repeatable. Because once you start doing that, you get a church calendar, 
and you detract from the Sabbath. What's more special to evangelicals today? Christmas or the Lord's Day? Well, it's obviously Christmas. They'll defend Christmas tooth and nail. They, none of them believe in the Sabbath anymore. Not even MacArthur, who's probably the best of the evangelicals. He doesn't believe that the Sabbath is binding, the Christian Sabbath is binding. Now, he thinks he ought to be in church, but he doesn't think it's binding. He wouldn't have an objection to going to see an NFL game or something. So we got to stick with Scripture, and the Westminster Standards are really the closest thing that men have come up with as far as a church uh, document that agrees with Scripture. That's why we subscribe to it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for occasional days. Bring us a great revival, Lord, so we have a day of thanksgiving. These wicked leaders that, that run America, sodomites, lesbians, thieves, liars, propagandists, perverts, wicked, reprobates. Deliver us from such men, Lord, and bring us godly men who love your law, who love your son, who bow the knee to Christ and confess him, that we could be a truly Christian nation and we could adopt Jesus Christ as Lord over our nation explicitly in our constitution and get rid of the wicked sin of toleration of false religions and public idolatry. In Jesus' name, amen.